Well, good evening. How are you guys? We're going to continue in our series of studies where we were two weeks ago because we had the uh, Soul Shelter Worship Night last week, which was a, a lot of fun, but also just a really blessed evening. Uh, this evening, we pick it up now in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 1. And in this section, which we're going to go through pretty quickly because it's a lot of reading, I have to do all the reading, you have to do all the listening, so uh, if you think it's a lot, then imagine having to do the reading. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to go through this, and we're going to go through it pretty quickly, but there are a few practical applications I do want to make. We're going to look at verses uh, 2, actually all the way, 2, 3, and 4, and there's a lot about the temple here, uh, and just as a way of a sort of a reminder to us, remember that David... David had spent the majority of his reign making extensive preparations for the building of the temple. And he, of course, did not build the temple, but he did just about everything except break ground. He had assembled the necessary workers and provided all of the building supplies. He provided the dress stone, the iron, the bronze, the cedar logs. He provided 3,750 tons of gold, 37,500 tons of silver, tons, tons, Imagine that, like a car is like, what, a, a one or two tons, you know, depending on the car. But that, that's a lot of weight, a lot of gold, a lot of silver. He provided the workmen to build the temple and established the necessary trading relationships in order to build the temple. And David charged his son, Solomon, to build the temple once he became king, which he did. You see, David truly desired to build the temple for the ark in Jerusalem, but David's career as a warrior, disqualified him. Is the door in the back open, maybe? Would somebody check that? Because I hear something. Is it my imagination? Somewhere I hear something coming through, and it's a little distracting. I apologize. We've got a lot going on in the building tonight. Thank you, guys. Thank you for checking that. David's career as a warrior disqualified him from building the temple. And David confirmed that the Lord had called Solomon to build the temple instead. And so rather than being upset about it, he just did everything he could to help his son do so. David provided Solomon uh, with the necessary plans for building the temple. He commanded all the leaders of Israel to support Solomon in building the temple. He provided Solomon with the instructions for the temple priests, the sacred articles. And he received all of the details of the plan to build the temple directly from the Lord. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2, where Solomon begins now to make the necessary preparations for building the temple. And we see in verse 1 that Solomon, in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And he conscripted 70,000 men as carriers and 80,000 as stonecutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. Solomon sent this message to Hiram, king of Tyre. Send me cedar logs, as you did for my father David, when you sent him cedar to build a palace to live in. Now I am about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God and to dedicate it to him for burning fragrant incense before him, for setting out the consecrated bread regularly, and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening and on the Sabbaths and new moons and at the appointed feasts of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. And the temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. And if I could just add this, which are no gods at all. If anything, they're just 
excuses for not worshiping God, or maybe even, as Paul said, they might even be demons, but they're certainly not gods. And that's why it's with a little g. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? Send me, therefore, a man skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, and in purple, crimson and blue yarn, and experienced in the art of engraving to work in Judah and Jerusalem with my skilled craftsmen, whom my father David provided." Send me also cedar, pine, and algum logs from Lebanon, for I know that your men are skilled in cutting timber there. My men will work with yours to provide me with with plenty of lumber, because the temple I build must be large and magnificent. I will give your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of olive oil. And so, as you can see, this is just the information uh, of how that trading relationship was established between uh, Solomon, the son of David, and Hiram, who was in a trading relationship with his father for many years. So, as we look at this, let's keep this in mind. This is Solomon being faithful to his father's charge, which was God's charge. This is Solomon being faithful to the will of God. Having secured the necessary laborers, to construct the table, which by the uh, the temple, which by the way was in fact a group of foreign laborers. Now, foreign laborers and they enjoyed the privileges of being in Israel and the blessings of being in Israel, but because they were foreigners and not citizens of Israel, they were deprived of certain rights as citizens. But one of the opportunities they they did have was to be laborers. And of course, this was considered slave labor, and no one's a fan of slave labor, but it was a reality in the ancient world. And these people that lived in Israel uh, lived in Israel as slaves and slave labor, more like servants, because the opportunities were great. And that is simply the way that economy worked at that time. It wasn't an abusive form of slavery necessarily, but it was, as was the case for thousands of years in this world, the only game in town, the only way that someone without wealth could actually provide for themselves. So what he did, he relied on, the, he relied on that foreign slave labor, conscripted 30,000 foreigners, uh, having them work without pay every third month, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you can read about that in 1 Kings 5. Uh, there was Adoniram who supervised the foreign and conscripted laborers serving on public works. And uh, I, I reference uh, 1 Kings chapter 5 because in 1 Kings chapter 5 we get a little bit more detail. Uh, we do know, and we'll see this when we get to verses 17 and 18 of this chapter, that Solomon conscripted a foreign workforce of about 153,600 carriers, stonecutters, and foremen. So they were the common laborers. They were 70,000 carriers, 80,000 stonecutters, and 3,600 foremen. Now, I, when I looked at that, I thought, hmm, I guess they must have had a union because they had quite a few uh, foremen, but they had certainly more laborers. Well, they were responsible for providing the stone for the temple foundation, so they weren't unskilled workers. They were skilled workers, but they were laborers as well. Uh, the first Kings records uh, about 300 less, but the total was 3,300. In either case, there was about 3,000, almost 4,000 foremen. So you needed people to supervise the work as well. You know, it's interesting when you're, when you're on a project, and I know some of our carpenters and plumbers and 
workmen here who, who do skilled labor uh, or a tradesman. Uh, you know, when you work on a big project, how important it is to have somebody sort of directing that project so that the plumbers don't install something before the carpenters had a chance to finish their work. There's so much project management is a skill in and of itself, and you need that. And so they did have that, which is good. Um, his craftsmen worked very closely with the hired craftsmen to build the temple. So they had some craftsmen that were from Israel and some from other places, but all of them worked together to accomplish the work. Now, Hiram sought to establish a trade relationship with Solomon after his father's death, that is, after David's death. Uh, it, it's important to note this, that everyone benefits in trade. You know, I mean, I don't know if you would consider yourself a free trader, but most people in this world recognize trade works really well for all different groups, all different nations. If you uh, have an abundance of one product and you can, uh, let's say, produce an abundance of wheat or grow a, a crop of, of corn, when you can do that and you have more than you can use, trading it for things that you don't have is very profitable, very beneficial. And so our economy in our world today still works very much like that. Uh, there was this man, Hiram I. He was a Phoenician king that utilized an extremely efficient shipping system. These people were very good at what they did. Uh, there was the city of Tyre. It was a Tyrum of Tyre. You know, Tyre was rebuilt by the Phoenicians in the 12th century. And, and it's now, it was now the capital of, a, of the maritime kingdom. And so they controlled about 150 miles of the Mediterranean coastline and held many colonies. So they were, and they were to the north of Israel, and they were a valuable trading partner. Uh, Lebanon, you might think of it as today modern Lebanon. Actually, it was called Lebanon then, too. Uh, but they controlled this area, and Lebanon used to be covered, covered with forests of cedar, which were later destroyed by the Turks many, many centuries later, but they were destroyed by the Turks. Now, during the Ottoman Empire and, and even before that, they denuded the forests there. They... they you, you can do this even in this country uh, if you're not careful. Without conservation, you cut down all your trees. You don't plant any new ones. Guess what? You run out of trees. So you have to be very careful about replanting forests. And so that they did not do. The Turks did not do. They were very abusive to the land. And as a result, those cedars don't really exist in the abundance that they did at this time, about a thousand years before Christ. Have you ever uh, seen the flag of the kingdom of Lebanon? Well, if you have, you'll see what's on it. It's a, it's a cedar tree. It's a tall cedar. And so that's why it was well, well known for that. Okay, well, Solomon wisely maintained these relationships. You know, there's a skill and a gift to establishing relationships. Like many of you who are in sales know that that's what a salesman does. He or she goes out, and, and when I say salesman, saleswoman, let's be careful, you know, by the way, when I grew up, when you used he, it could mean he and her. Like, you know, that's the way the English language was described. But now, of course, everyone seems to think they can have their own language within the language. It doesn't work that way, actually. But salespeople, how about that? Salespeople, well, they establish new relationships. And that's a very difficult thing to do. You're coming in cold. They sometimes call it cold calling. And you establish an account or a business relationship based on your ability to sell. And what you're trying to do is show the benefit to that person of the relationship. Because it really is a relationship, right? At least most people approach it that way. But then many times sales staff will hand off that relationship to an account manager whose job it is, and some of you may be account managers, uh, to maintain that relationship. 
because you hope to have future sales and you don't want to lose that relationship. So there are gifts that need to be exercised in business. I have a business background and I wasn't in sales, but I was on the side of maintaining business relationships. And I can tell you it's a very important aspect to business. It is also an important aspect to ministry. Uh, let me say it this way. We're not in business. We're a nonprofit. Okay? We, we don't sell anything. Okay? Uh, we don't look to expand a profit margin. That's not how we approach ministry. I don't think anyone should. But if you look at the skills involved in business relationships, which is my frame of reference, you'll know that establishing relationships is very important in ministry. And maintaining relationships is very important in ministry. You might think of it this way. The people that establish relationships, specifically with the unsaved, are our evangelists. Amen? They go out and they build relationships and through relationships seek to bring people into the kingdom of God. It's the same skill. It's just employed differently. So if you're a salesperson, and I know a lot of very good salespeople, they're excellent evangelists. As Christians, they, they have that ability to just strike up a conversation and build a relationship of trust very quickly. So maybe that's you, and I want to just encourage you, if you're in sales, to think about that, that that skill, that, that ability, natural or learned, is very, very advantageous when you're sharing the gospel. Again, we're not selling anything. It's not a, not a business relationship per se, but it's, it's the same skill set. Now, maybe you are better at just maintaining relationships, not necessarily establishing them. Maybe you are an account manager. Well, in ministry, uh, not necessarily the evangelistic side, but in ministry, whether it be ministering within the church or around the church or ministering to people, you are doing that exact thing. You are maintaining relationships. You know, I can't tell you how much my business career prepared me for ministry, all types of ministry. Again, I wasn't in the sales force, but uh, I certainly know how to build a relationship or establish a relationship, but I think my skills definitely have been more developed in maintaining them uh, just because of my background. But in either case, all of us have skills and, and gifts and abilities that God has blessed us with and the Spirit has blessed us with and anointed us with. Are you using those gifts for the kingdom of God? That's the question. Only you can answer that, but are you? It's funny how many people will say, oh, I, 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 can't, I can't do this, I can't do that. And yet they have the skills. God has given them the ability if they just surrender it to him. So maintaining those relationships is important as well. And what Solomon did was he wisely maintained his father's important trade relationship with Hiram, king of Tyre. David established the relationship. Solomon maintained it. When he spoke to him, and uh, we've, we've kind of read through this already, I believe. We got all the way down through... Uh, Verse 10, he uh, affirmed his commitment to purchase more cedar and pine logs. That's a good way to continue a business relationship. Oh, we're going to continue to purchase from you. He affirmed his commitment to building the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem with Hiram's help and assistance. He even requested skilled craftsmen to work with his hired craftsmen to build the temple. So this relationship was essential, not important, essential. And David knew that, and now Solomon understood it as well. He affirmed the skill of Hiram's men and the quality of their work. You know, when you have someone who can do skilled labor or, or some type of craftsman, uh, some type of work that that's requires finished carpentry or even plumbing or something of that nature, and you know someone who's good at it, boy, you, you really have a gold mine there because it's hard to find people 
who are very skilled at those things. And uh, so that's a good thing, right? So we want to maintain those relationships. Well, he offered to provide men to work with Hiram's men to provide lumber for the temple. So he provided the work. He provided the workforce, and he offered to provide provisions for Hiram's household in exchange for those cedar and pine logs. Now that's what we call bartering, and that was in that day. That was the means of payment. You would rather uh, rather than be given funds to go purchase the things that you need. It was far better to receive the things you needed, like food. And so that worked out very well. I have found that uh, it's a good thing when you have business relationships. If you can establish a barter relationship, it's better than a financial transactional relationship. I talked about this recently uh, here, here at the church. And it's this idea that, you know, like, let's say that I know how to install a sink, okay? And let's say I don't know how to do some type of gardening, okay? I don't necessarily, I do know how to do those things. I don't necessarily like doing those things. But let's say that I don't know how. Well, maybe you do gardening and maybe I do the sink. And we kind of say, well, I'll install your bathroom sink, your kitchen sink, if you take care of the planting in my backyard. And, you know, those kinds of relationships are good because everyone benefits and the relationship is built up. So look for that in the kingdom of God. Look for that. Opportunities to benefit someone else, mutually benefit one another. That brings us together. So much better than a transactional relationship, right? So much better. Feels better, too. And it's more affirming. Well, anyway, Hiram was extremely pleased to secure this lucrative trade agreement with Solomon. It was good for him. In fact, look at verses 11 through 16. Hiram, king of Tyre, replied by letter to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you their king. And Hiram added, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth. He has given King David a wise son, endowed with intelligence and discernment, who will build a temple for the Lord and a palace for himself. I am sending you Horamabi, a man of great skill, whose mother was from Dan, that's uh, northern Israel, and whose father was from Tyre, that's Lebanon. He is trained to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, and with purple and blue and crimson yarn and fine linen. He is experienced in all kinds of engraving and can execute any design given to him. He will work with your craftsmen and with those of my Lord David, your father. Now let my Lord send his servants the wheat and barley and olive oil and wine. He promised, and we will cut all the logs from Lebanon that you need and will float them in rafts by sea down to Joppa, and you can then take them up to Jerusalem. So there you, there you have it. That's a great re- business relationship, but I've always learned from business relationships, and I have a lot of practical application that I've received from those relationships to ministry. Again, I'm not a seminarian. I, I might, my formal training wasn't in ministry. I have a lot of experience, but my formal training was in business. So I approach things a little differently than some pastors because of it. Well, anyway, this man Hiram praised the Lord for Solomon's wisdom and his desire to build this temple. It was good for everyone. And he agreed to send these craftsmen to work with his hired craftsmen to build that temple. This man was an expert. Uh, his name was Huramabi. He was an expert bronze smith. I don't know how much you know about the casting of metal. Uh, I know some of our artists or sculptors might know this. You generally sand cast bronze. Uh, I've watched YouTube videos about this. I don't do any of this, okay? But I am fascinated by the way you cast metal with molds and forms. And, uh, you know, we take for granted, you see something made out of solid metal and you think, ah, you know, that was cast. There's a process. It's an artistic process. It's, 
It's interesting, and I just want to point out that in God's kingdom, creative people are in demand. You know, it's a good thing. I, uh, in, in the mentoring group that I teach on Thursdays, uh, one of the lessons I do, I haven't done it yet in this term, but uh, creativity in ministry. You know, you can be really creative. There are people here who are creative in wonderful ways. Everything from picking out colors to picking out designs to creating things and building things, all of those skills, if you think they're not valuable, let me tell you, they are. They're valuable here in this context. But in the church, if we have skilled people, people who are artisans or artists or craftsmen, I hold them at a premium. We, we want people like that to serve using those very gifts. And many of you who have those skills have served here in this church in those wonderful ways. I want to encourage it because you know what? It's rare to find people skilled in this way. So we value that. And uh, some people, and I'm one of them, actually believe that there's a spiritual gift of craftsmanship. It's not necessarily mentioned in the New Testament per se, but it's mentioned in the Old Testament. When they built the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, there was a couple of men who were specifically gifted by God with their abilities as craftsmen. So is that possible that God could continue to do that today? Yes, amen, I believe it is true. So this man was actually, his father was from Tyre, his mother was from Israel. So he was a, a good choice to spearhead this entire project, the finer points of it. He agreed to provide, that is Hiram agreed to provide uh, cedar and pine logs in exchange for those provisions. And they maintained this mutually beneficial trade agreement for many years. And that says a lot, it really does. Oh, by the way, just one of the things I want to mention, you know, you can kind of assess or judge, if I can use that word, a person's effectiveness by their ability to maintain good relationships. That's true for ministry. It's also just true for life. Are you the kind of person that, you know, when people see you, they, they react positively? They, you know, they, I mean, I grew up in a culture as an Italian-American where we always had a guy you know, we just, you know, if you needed something done, oh, call my guy. And, and those, those, those were relationship-based things. Those were, those were relationships that allowed us to, to, to not just favor one person, but the idea is I have a relationship with this guy. He does my heating, you know, he does my furnace. And, and you need somebody, I'll introduce you to my guy. You know, so you're the kind of person that you build those kinds of relationships. Some, some cultures don't look to do that. But my culture growing up did, and, and I think that's a really, really good practice, if you can get into that. Build relationships. And, and as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, the more relationships you have with people in business, the more opportunities you have to share Christ. Amen? Okay. So there are a couple of practical applications here. Well, Solomon secured a treaty with Hiram through this trade agreement. First Kings chapter 5 tells us they actually established a treaty showing again that he had received great wisdom, insight, and understanding from the Lord. And they both knew, both Hiram and Solomon, that successful trading partners seldom become adversaries. So there is a school of economies that would suggest that the more interdependent economies between nations are upon one another, the more they will live in peace. The idea is if you benefit me and I benefit you, why would I go to war with you? So there's a whole school of government and, and political thinking 
Uh, and, and I'm not going to weigh in. I'm just saying there's a whole school out there that would suggest the more intertwined nations are in trading relationships, the less likely they are to go to war. And we all love peace, right? By the way, Solomon's name sounds like the Hebrew word for peace, Shalom, Solomon. So he was a man of peace, which is a good thing. Okay, now we get to chapter 3. And uh, I want to just sort of read through chapter 3. There's a a fair amount of information here, and then I'll comment. In chapter 3 we read, oh, excuse me, let me read the figures in in verses 17 and 18 of that chapter, chapter 2. Solomon took a census of all the aliens who were in Israel after the census his father David had taken, and they were found to be, as I mentioned before, 153,600. I did mention the number. He assigned 70,000 to be carriers, 80,000 to be stonecutters in the hills, with 3,600 foremen over them to keep the people working, which I've already mentioned. Okay, now, chapter 3, and I'm going to read the chapters, about 17 verses. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. He began building on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. The foundation Solomon laid for the building of the temple was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, using the cubit of the old standard. And the portico at the front of the temple was 20 cubits long across the width of the building and 20 cubits high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. So as I'm reading this, you just sort of want to imagine uh, or think about what's being described. We don't have a picture, but we do have the words that describe it. He overlaid the temple with pure gold. Verse 5, he paneled the main hall with pine and covered it with fine gold and decorated it with palm tree and chain designs. He adorned the temple with precious stones. And the gold he used was gold of Parvaim. He overlaid the ceiling beams, door frames, walls, and doors of the temple with gold. He carved cherubim on the walls. Can you imagine what it was like on the inside? You know, we always imagine just wooden walls, but they were wood covered with gold. They had lamps in there. Can you imagine how bright it must have been with all that reflection, right? He built the most holy place, its length corresponding uh, to the width of the temple, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. The gold nails weighed 50 shekels. He also overlaid the upper parts with gold. And in the most holy place, and this is interesting because this describes the, uh, the statuary, if you will, that were over the ark in the holy place. It says, in the most holy place, he made a pair of sculptured cherubim and overlaid them with gold. The total wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits and One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long and touched the temple wall, while its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the other cherub. Similarly, one wing of the second cherub was five cubits long and touched the other temple wall, and its other wing, also five cubits long, touched the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim uh, extended 20 cubits, and they stood on their feet facing the main hall. Now, he made a curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim worked into it. And in the front of the temple, he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits long, uh, each with a capital on the top measuring five cubits. And he made interwoven chains, put them on top of the pillars. And he also made 100 pomegranates and attached them to the chains. And he erected the pillars in front of the temple, one to the south, one to the north, one to the south he named Jachin, and the one to the north, Boaz. Interesting. We'll get to that in just a minute. Okay, so that's all the details of the design. And while it may be hard to imagine some of those things, it's pretty straightforward. 
Uh, What we learn here is Solomon built the temple, as he supervised its construction, on Mount Moriah. Now, you probably remember, if you've read the book of Genesis, that it was on Mount Moriah that Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him before the Lord. And it was there, incidentally, that chapter, I believe it's Genesis 22, that chapter is where we're told Abraham took his son, God said, take your son whom you love, and that's the first time the word love is used in the Bible. And it's the love between a father and a son. And he took his son, and he was willing to sacrifice him. God provided for for them. He provided himself a lamb, and they made that sacrifice instead. But the prophecy was given, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And so this was the location where the father would sacrifice the son, the son he loved. And this became a prophecy. And of course, this is the same area where the temple was located, the same mountain range, if you will. And years later, I guess this is about a thousand, we're reading today, where it's about a thousand years before Christ, about a thousand years later, Christ himself was sacrificed for our sins on the mountain range, Mount Moriah. So it's interesting how that all links together. You start with Abraham and Isaac, and now we see where the temple of sacrifice was located, and was on the same area, or within the same area, that Christ was sacrificed for our sins. So this was a place where God had predicted uh, sacrifices would be made for sin uh, through the temple, and then later Christ himself. And that's called thematic prophecy, and it comes up a lot within the scriptures. And you'll see a prophecy that's sort of fulfilled and repeated and fulfilled until ultimately it's fulfilled in completion. And some of these have yet to be fulfilled in completion. In the case of Christ, it is finished. Amen? So, Solomon built the temple on this Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. We'll remember back in First Chronicles. David had purchased the threshing floor from Aaron for the site of the altar. And David discerned that the Lord had led him to this site. And this was the site that God had picked out for the temple. And Solomon became king of Israel in 970 B.C., so about a thousand years before Christ. He started building the temple just four years later. 480 years had passed since Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt in 1446 B.C. And so now the temple is being built almost 500 years after they were led out of Egypt. Solomon started construction in 966 B.C., and it took him about seven years to complete it. And so that we learn within the scriptures. Now, Solomon used the architectural designs that the Lord had given to David. Just like Moses had received the designs for the tabernacle, David had received the designs for the temple. By the way, when we talk about cubits, cubits, and you probably know this, but cubit, well, here's the thing. If you're building and you were an ancient carpenter, Uh, you didn't have to have a separate tape measure uh, because you used your arm. So this was your cubit. It was from your elbow to the top of your finger. And obviously it's important that uh, you use the same cubit. (laughs) If someone else comes in and measures, it's going to be a little different. Jim, whenever he's measuring something, always walks with his feet like this because I think you said your shoe is about a foot, right? Mine mine isn't that much, but uh, he walks and he, he always... I'll say, what do you think that is? He'll measure it. And it's like, then I get the tape measure out just to, just to be sure. And it's dead on. So and his foot is a foot. There you go. So we know where that comes from. But the cubit was from the elbow to the top of the middle finger. So that was your cubit. And so it's roughly about an average of 18 inches. 
So rather than being a foot, it was about a foot and a half, right? So that was that. And then you had a span, which was your hand, which was a cross. And there was a, a width. And, you, you know, you, used, you actually used your arm, so you never had to go back down the ladder and pick up your tools. Carried them, you carried them around with you. <laughs> but uh, in either case, uh, this was a temple that was 90 feet long, 60 cubits, 90 feet, right? Uh, by 30 feet wide, 45 feet high, twice the size of the tabernacle, yet very similar in design. The temple had a portico or a front part that was 30 foot long by 30 feet high. It was also overlaid with gold, a lot of gold. You see, we saw all those tons of gold, and now we know why. Uh, it had an architecturally interesting offset design. It was sort of narrower at its base. Uh, and I would just encourage you to Google and look at some pictures. It's probably the best way to do that. But had rows of windows above eye level as well. Uh, but the temple had that portico. It had that design. And all of the blocks, interestingly enough, were prefab. Uh, if you're familiar with prefab, you know, you, you don't actually create the materials. They're delivered. Uh, when we did the bathroom project uh, last year, Jim, he was, he was real happy with the way it was delivered. This truck pulled up the driveway and uh, dropped off all of our materials. Everything was prefab. We just had to put it together. Like we weren't out there casting metal and cutting things necessarily, a little bit. But we, we actually got prefab designs for the bathrooms and were able to put all the partitions up that way. It makes things a little easier. Not easy, but easier. But in either case, it was all prefab from the quarry that was located under the city. And the temple had three levels, and the entrance uh, to the lowest level faced south. So we're, we're told all that in some of 1 Kings chapter 6. I'm just giving you a summary of some of the other writings so you can better understand the temple design. Now, the Lord made a conditional promise, and this is actually mentioned in 1 Kings 6. I want you to know this. The Lord had made a conditional promise to Solomon while he was building the temple. So they're out there building the temple, and in 1 Kings chapter 6, the Lord makes a promise, but it's conditional. His promise to David would be fulfilled through Solomon's obedience to God's word. So the promises of God are yes and amen, amen? But the promises of God are oftentimes conditional upon our obedience. So if you're not obeying God and, and things don't go well with you, can you blame God? It always amazes me. People blame God for wars disasters. They blame God for everything. And uh, it's kind of interesting because at no point does anyone ever say, well, maybe if we obeyed God, we would be blessed. You know, no one ever seems to say that. They always just sort of say, well, it's God's fault. I worked for an insurance company for 20 years and in all of our contracts, amazing. You know, you wouldn't expect to find the, the term or the name God there, but an act of God was anything bad that might happen. And that's not the way we should look at the acts of God. Most of what happens in our world that we can't explain or we feel we're not responsible for, we probably are responsible for in one way, shape, or form. For example, even a pandemic is the result of sin coming into the world. So, I mean, you know, you have to understand God is not at fault. You know, don't blame God. Look to your own life. Ask, am I being obedient to God? Because the blessings of God come to those, conditionally speaking, who obey him. And that was what he was told. And also the promise of his presence, him being there among the Israelites, was also conditional. You see, his promise to us, though, has been fulfilled through Jesus' obedience to God's word. So we're very fortunate because unlike the Israelites, they had to obey in order to be blessed. Here's what I have to say about this. 
There's some truth to that today, but generally we're blessed not because of our obedience, but through Christ's obedience to death on the cross. Amen? So why are you blessed? Oh, I'm so obedient. I'm such a good child of God. No, no, you're blessed today, not, be, not based on your obedience, although sometimes your disobedience can work against you. Your blessings are the result of Christ's obedience on the cross. That's called the grace of God. So keep that in mind, a little different than the Old Testament. The promise of his presence among us now is unconditional in Jesus Christ. So God's love is unconditional, and even his promises now are pretty much unconditional because of Christ's faithfulness. That's not to say, though, that your disobedience won't bring consequences. But one thing that's wonderful is that your disobedience won't bring judgment for sin because of Christ's grace and love for you. So why do we call it the New Testament or the New Covenant? Oh, it's so much better than the old. Amen? It's made in the blood of Christ. Okay, well... I think I've already read this, but Solomon used the interior designs that the Lord had given to David, and we read through them. Walls and ceilings were paneled with carved cedar, and the floor was pine. Those of you who do building can appreciate some of this. The two rooms, you had the main hall, which was 60 feet, and then the most holy place, which was 30 feet. Again, very similar to the tabernacle. The main hall was paneled with pine, covered with gold and carved designs. Must have been incredibly beautiful. Oh, and by the way, Sometimes when a cathedral or a church is built, it's at the expense of people. And I don't think that's ever a good thing uh, when it's at the expense of people. But sometimes when a building project, a church uh, or a cathedral or, or something of that nature, is built to the glory of God, sometimes it's built upon the free will offerings of those that build it. And I think at times that's a good thing. And so if you walk into a house of God and it happens to be beautiful... Because the people built it to the glory of God. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it can get a little carried away. But in general, having a nice place to worship, and we're very fortunate to have a nice place to worship here at Calvary Chapel, it's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing when it becomes like the priority over people. You know? But uh, I just wanted to mention that. Because this was a beautiful house of worship. The temple was adorned with precious stones and fine gold. The entire inside was overlaid with gold, with gold chains, carved cherubim. These were carved cherubim, palm trees, and uh, open flowers on the walls, and in both rooms. So not just walls, but beautiful walls. The floors of the main hall and the most holy place were covered with gold. So even the floor, imagine that. The most holy place was 30 by 30 feet, overlaid with gold, and it housed the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark hasn't been moved in. We'll see that in our next study, but... And then we saw it described, these two 15 by 15 foot gold-covered olive wood cherubim in the inner sanctuary. They must have been beautiful. And of course, there was the curtain or the veil, which was the curtain of blue, purple, and crimson yarn, and the fine linen with cherubim. And so that, that was something. And the inner and outer doors were carved like the walls, covered with beaten gold, according to 1 Kings. And there was an inner courtyard of cedar and stone. So some of this comes from 1 Kings chapter 6. But all of that kind of gives you an idea of the temple's design. Now Solomon also erected two bronze pillars. They were about 27 feet high, and they were 18 feet around, and they had 7.5 foot ornate capitals. So you can imagine them out front. And again, if you really want to see an artist's rendering of the temple, I'm sure you can find many different designs online uh, or in in books. But uh, for tonight, we're just sort of imagining, if we will. Uh, This... King Solomon had hired Hiram of Tyre, uh, an expert 
bronze smith to make these bronze pillars. These pillars were erected at the entrance to the temple. There were two of them. And by the way, bronze, all of the metals in Scripture have a symbolic significance. When we talk about bronze, though, we're talking about the metal that speaks of God's judgment. That's why the altar, the brazen altar of sacrifice, was made out of bronze. That's why bronze is always employed when we're talking about God's judgment. So, isn't it interesting that the pillars outside the temple were made of bronze? The communication is sort of this, you know, judge in your heart before you enter the presence of God. Allow, do, do a little self-judgment, you know. I really do believe that there's some, some, some aspect of that that was really pertinent and applicable today. Before you walk in that back door, we may not have two bronze pillars, but before you walk into a worship service, before you walk into to any service, before you walk into a prayer meeting or a Bible study, think about your heart. Do a little self-examination. Do a little self-judgment. Where am I at? And if you need to ask for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. I know I often do. It, it, judge in your heart. Where are you at? Like, do that. That's a good exercise. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's what the scriptures teach us in the New Testament. See where you are. Take inventory of your life. Do that before the worship starts. Because then you will enjoy the worship of God without this feeling of guilt or shame or that you haven't been forgiven or you need, you know, you're not right with God. Get right with God. I think that's what the bronze pillars really mean. Get right with God before you worship him. It's so much better if you do. Amen? Well, the names of the pillars were Jachin, which means he establishes, and Boaz, which means in him is strength. So you have this idea of God establishing and strengthening you. God establishing you and strengthening you. As you take inventory of your life, as you judge your own heart, that is before God's presence, God will establish you and strengthen you in his love so that when you walk into the house of the Lord, you are established and strengthened in your relationship with him. I, I love all those symbols, but we'll continue. Well, Solomon completed the temple in 959 BC after seven years of construction, according to 1 Kings chapter 6. And then in the last chapter we're going to look at today, uh, in chapter 4, Solomon supervised the furnishing of the temple as well. And uh, there's a lot of details here, but I'll read through that and then we'll pretty much wrap things up. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 4, and I think what we're going to do, yeah, we'll read the whole section. Why not? We learn that Solomon made a bronze altar 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 10 cubits high. He made the sea of cast metal, that is a large pool, it's called a sea a basin, if you will, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and five cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Uh, below the rim, figures of bulls encircled it, 10 to a cubit, and the bulls were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. The sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand breath. Remember, we talked about the cubit. Now we're talking about the hand breath. It was a hand breath in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It held 3,000 baths. I'll give you all the 
conversions in just a minute. He then made ten basins for washing, placed five on the south side, five on the north, and in them things to be used for the burnt offerings were rinsed. But the sea was to be used by the priests for washing. He made ten gold lampstands according to the specifications for them and placed them in the temple, five on the south side, five on the north. He made ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the south side and five on the north. He also made a hundred gold sprinkling bowls and he made the courtyard of the priests and the large court of the doors uh, and the doors for the court and overlaid the doors with bronze. And notice the doors also made of bronze. He placed placed the sea on the south side at the southeast corner, and he also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Huram, not Hiram, Huram, finished the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of God. And then I love this, because are you that kind of person like I am, that when you go to a restaurant or you buy something at the store, and they ask you, would you like a receipt? You say yes. Some people don't care. I happen to do my books and my bookkeeping. I like to have that paper receipt. I guess I'm, I'm old like that. You know, a lot of these younger people don't need receipts. I need receipts. Well, anyway, here he has his receipt. It's interesting because it says in verse 12, uh, so Solomon, uh, excuse me, so Herm finished, and he, it says the two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of network decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on the top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates, 400, wow, for the two sets of network, two rows of pomegranates for each network, decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on the top of the pillars, the stands and their basins, the sea and the 12 bulls under it, pots, shovels, meat forks, and all related articles. So there's his receipt. Well, all the objects that Huramabi made for King Solomon uh, for the temple of the Lord were of polished bronze. So that was the bronze smith that we talked about. But the king had them cast in clay molds in the plain of the Jordan between Sukkoth and Zarathon. All these things that Solomon had made check this out, amounted to so much that the weight of bronze was not determined. There was so much bronze, they didn't even bother weighing it. It was was pointless. Solomon, though, also made all the furnishings that were in God's temple, the golden altar. Now we're talking about gold. The tables on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold with their lamps to burn in front of the inner sanctuary as prescribed, the gold floral work and lamps and tongs, and they were solid gold. The pure gold wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes and censers, and the gold doors of the temple, the inner doors of the most holy place, and the doors of the main hall. So what we're learning there is this. These are all the golden items that were made. And before we get to the very last verse we'll look at in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I'm not going to go back over all of that, but just a couple of notes. Uh, this, This bronze altar was 30 feet long by 30 feet wide, about 15 feet high. Large brazen altar for sacrifice. There was this bronze sea, which was 15 feet in diameter, seven and a half feet high and three inches thick. So you can imagine, think of it as like a fountain, but not a fountain. uh, It's called the sea, but you might... Uh, you might call it just a giant bowl of water, you know, that they, that they rinsed in and they washed in. Uh, also, a decorative pool, let's call it that. How about that? It uh, was used for washing. And it stood on these 12 bronze bulls in groups, groups of three facing in all four directions. By the way, to give you an idea, and I, I don't have a swimming pool, but if you do, you probably know how many uh, gallons of water your swimming pool holds. I, I, you know, I have no idea, but... This sea, or pool, held between 11,500 and 17,500 gallons of water. It's a lot of water, and they had to fill it. Hopefully the rain helped out, but in either case, they had to fill it. 
It was placed in the southeast corner of the courtyard, and he also cast 10 bronze movable stands. These stands were six by six feet, four and a half feet uh, high. They were ornately decorated. Uh, and so these were very beautiful things. He cast 10 six-foot bronze basins for each of the movable stands. So they had these little uh, pools or little basins on these stands. And these were used to wash the vessels, to wash the things that they used in the temple sacrifices. And each of them held around 230 gallons of water. So I'm thinking the size of a bathtub, but maybe that's even too small. Uh, half of them were placed on the south, half on the north of the temple. And he made that courtyard of the priests, the large court with the doors overlaid with bronze. Again, this idea of the, if you're coming up to the doors, bronze speaks of judgment. Judge your own heart before you enter the house of worship. That's the idea. That's the message. But he also had all of the gold furnishing maids, uh, gold furnishings made. He made 10 golden lampstands, 10 golden tables, and 100 gold sprinkling bowls. Now, gold, gold is an interesting metal. It's a metal that symbolizes divine nature or God's deity. It speaks of God himself. Now, half of the lambs were, uh, lamps were placed on the south side, half on the north. Half of the tables were placed on the south side and half on the north. And then he had this golden altar, the golden table, and the ten golden lampstands made. And again, all of it speaks of God. And that's why the articles that were in the temple were gold, and the articles that were outside the temple were bronze. That's the idea. So, because inside is where God dwells, that's why all of the articles had to be gold. Now, Many of the articles and the walls and the floors were wood, but they were covered with gold. And that's for obvious reasons. It's very hard to build something out of solid gold, so it made more sense to have wood covered with gold. Now, this is fascinating to me because while gold is the metal that symbolizes deity in the scripture, wood symbolizes humanity in the scripture. It perishes, it doesn't last forever, it gets rotten, you know, just like we get rotten. <laughs> We perish. We don't last forever. Wood symbolizes humanity in the scriptures. And wood covered with gold is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wood that symbolizes his humanity, the gold, his deity. And so every time you see in the temple or the tabernacle, gold-covered wood, it speaks of Jesus Christ in his divine and human nature. Not 50-50, 100% God, 100% man. Amen? Beautiful symbols. The incense altar, which was inside the temple, it symbolized prayer. Incense is a symbol of prayer to God the Father. The table, the table where they kept the showbread, it symbolizes fellowship with God the Son. It's a wooden table covered with gold, and there's bread on the table. I am the bread of life. And every time we talk about fellowship with Jesus, we talk about it around the table. Table fellowship, having fellowship with God. And so the incense altar speaks of prayer. It's right before the veil. Then you have the table of showbread, which in so many ways speaks of Jesus Christ. And then we had the lampstand. And there were actually lampstands in the temple because they needed more than just one. But in the tabernacle, they had the golden lampstand. This symbolizes the illumination of God the Holy Spirit. And it's just a beautiful picture of the spirit, beaten gold, not wood, made out of gold, beaten gold. Well, Solomon had the miscellaneous basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers made all out of gold. Even had the door sockets for the temple doors made out of gold. Now, this is the interior doors. 
So, you know, it's interesting that so many of the metals have these symbolism and that they apply consistently throughout Scripture. By the way, it's not mentioned here, but um, silver. Silver is the symbol or, or the, uh, symbolizes redemption. It's always used to redeem. And uh, interesting because when the tabernacle was built, it was, it was portable, right? So they would build the tabernacle and they would place these wooden panels, which was like a tent, it was a tent really, on silver blocks. And those silver blocks were, were the foundation of the tabernacle. Well, the foundation of God's work in our life is based in redemption. And so I could go all night just on the metals of the Bible, but we'll stop there. But anyway, in verse 1 of chapter 5, and as we close, when all the work Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought the things his father David had dedicated. He brought them in. And the silver and gold and all the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of God's temple. So David, excuse me, Solomon brought all the silver and gold and furnishings dedicated by David into the temple. So they not only had all the metals necessary to build the temple, they had resources to maintain it. That's the idea. David had laid up his treasure in heaven, if you think about it, really. He had sowed generously and had reaped likewise. David had provided vessels for God's glory, and because he did this, he himself became a vessel of honor. So what's the moral of the story? What's the application we close with? David is a great example because he was told he couldn't build the temple, but he spent his entire life after that point providing for the temple to be built. Here's here's what I have to say about that. You know, as we make our living, as God blesses us financially, we have tremendous opportunities to invest in the kingdom of God that he might be worshipped by all people. Now, that can be supporting ministries, missions, meeting people's needs. But remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. So I guess what I'm trying to say is allow God to lead you in your giving that you might be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful testimony, the building and the furnishing of the temple. May we take our practical applications from this section of your word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. May we see clearly how you've redeemed us, how you, God, provided Jesus, the Son, as a man and God to redeem us. And he took upon himself the judgment that we might be saved. Lord, continue to bless us through our series of studies in Second Chronicles. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.